0: People of God in Christ, we are making our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And this might be a good point in his letter to stop and review the overall structure of Paul's letter. It's the book of Romans that most clearly gives us the theological outline of sin, salvation, service. This is the outline and the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism. But it's not just the Heidelberg, or it's not just theological or even doctrinal. It's really the outline of the Christian life. Sin, salvation, service. First, we must know our sin. If we don't know the bad news of our sin, we will not hear the good news of our Savior. If you don't realize that the building is on fire, you're not going to listen to the fireman who has come to save you. Second, then, we must know the good news. We must hear and understand the teaching of God's Word regarding what God has done in Christ to save us. And third, we must know what kind of life then pleases God. Not that we would please Him to earn or achieve that which is given freely to us, but in order to be reasonable, says Paul in several places, to express the obvious, inevitable gratitude for what God has done for us to save us in Christ. Sin, salvation, service. Or guilt, grace, and gratitude. Or the actual titles of each of the parts of the Heidelberg Catechism are misery, our salvation, and our gratitude. The structure found in the Heidelberg Catechism follows the structure of Paul's letter to the Romans, and it's a structure that forms and, and guides the Christian life. Currently, we are in the second part of Paul's letter, the part dealing mostly. With, uh, with his teaching regarding our salvation in Christ. And why do I say mostly? Well, because right here in the middle of the part of Romans that teaches salvation, in Romans 6, we hear Paul turning to the matter of obedience. Wait a second. I, I, I thought that wasn't supposed to come until the last part. It is true that the last part is specifically about obedience, our grateful grateful service to God for what He has done for us in Christ. But Paul turns to obedience even in Romans chapter 6, and he does so with these words, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Paul here is pausing, in in, in a sense, uh, to answer an objection. Uh, It is likely an objection that he had gotten used to hearing in his ministry. It it might also come to his attention, not as an objection, but but as a mistake too often made. Uh, In the form of a mistaken understanding, it might sound like this, and and, and you've heard this before, okay, if God is so willing to forgive, and if, and if righteousness is the gift of God, then I will take the opportunity to go right on sinning. God is good at forgiving, and I'm good at sinning. What a great arrangement. I will just go right on living a life of sin. It's like the wife who says, uh, my husband is is good at making money, and I'm good at spending it, so uh, let the spending continue. Uh, Never mind how hard the, the husband is having to work in order to provide the money for the extravagant spending. Never mind that the husband works so much and the wife spends so much that they never have time to see each other and they never enjoy each other's company. But in the form of an objection, it's it's the concern that this very thing will happen. That and, and and it's not an empty concern. There are those who hear the gospel, who who understand that righteousness is the gift of God. The righteousness that saves us is from God, and so they figure to just go right on sinning. Or when they sin, they just maybe laugh it off a bit without any grief or sorrow for their sin. Paul dealt with this objection and, and so did Martin Luther. As he rediscovered the gospel in, 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 in God's word in his day, the Judaizers objected to Paul and, and they said, you can't say that, that righteousness is a gift, because then well, what's going to motivate people to behave properly? And Martin Luther's opponents said the same thing. If you preach that, all hell is going to break loose. People will not have a reason to obey if salvation is purely the gift of God. So here's the first point as we begin Romans 6. The believers call to obedience. No, as Paul is preaching the gospel as he is explaining and proclaiming the good news that indeed righteousness is the gift of God, that salvation is full and free to those who merely receive it by faith. The point is not that sin should just continue. Paul was used, was used to hearing the objection or perhaps seeing the mistake made, so he pauses here and, and, he, and he jumps to the matter of obedience. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And actually, he has already addressed this concern earlier in Romans 3, 7 and 8, when he writes, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some slanderously charge us with saying... Their condemnation is just. You see, it wasn't just an objection. It, it wasn't just someone saying, oh, I don't know about that. Uh, uh, I, I think if you preach a gospel uh, in which God just gives righteousness, people might take that as a license to sin all the more. No, it was an objection that Paul heard in the form of even slander against himself. You're just encouraging people to sin. So the the objection came. It was the same slander received by Martin Luther that he was encouraging people to sin by promising them God's grace, by promising them God's forgiveness, by promising them a saving righteousness credited to them Merely by faith. So Paul comes back to the matter in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we go right on sinning? Because as we do, God will go right on forgiving. Shall we continue willingly, perhaps even gleefully in sin? with the assurance that God will always match the degree of our sin with the amount of His grace. Paul's answer is emphatic. In fact, Paul makes his answer as emphatic as it possibly can be, and it gets translated like this, by no means. We might also say, absolutely not. Which is to say, what are you out of your mind? If that's what you think, then you haven't understood the gospel at all. Yes, the righteousness that saves us is a gift. Yes, salvation is full and free. Remember last time, the free gift. Paul's somewhat redundant statement that he says many times over in the last passage. Salvation is, is a free gift. And it's merely to be received as Christ provides it. But the fact that Christ provides it by His suffering and death, if that is understood rightly, then this will be the reason to, to turn from sin to more and more hate sin and even to delight in doing good in order to honor and serve Jesus, our Savior, whom we love. It comes down to motivation. The call to obedience is always sounded into the life of the believer in Christ. Sin does matter. And obedience is always our calling, but why? And this goes to the heart, does, does it not? It, if I see you living a holy life, the question remains, why are you doing it? Why are you foregoing the pleasures of sin? Right now you could be home, looking uh, uh, or, or catching up on some much-needed sleep. Uh, you could be uh, spending your evenings uh, This coming week, looking at the wrong stuff on the Internet, Uh, you could be unfaithful to your spouse or unchaste as a as a single person. And and why would it matter when God forgives sin, when when righteous, when the righteousness of Christ is is to your credit? But you don't do such things. You don't live that way. And yet, why? Why? Are you hoping still to earn your salvation? Are you thinking still to add something to the the righteousness of Christ? Motivation matters. It's important to ask ourselves, why are we doing what we are doing? Why are we living the lives that we are living? There are two mistakes Two ditches to drift into on either side of the road. Here's a good analogy because uh, our Lord himself spoke of the narrow way. The path to be walked as his disciple. The one error, the ditch on one side of the road, on one side of the narrow way, is to be concerned about or is to not be concerned about your sin at all. To do so, to live a life of license and debauchery, is is to run off the road and and to plow into the, the ditch on one side of the road. But the ditch on the other side of the road is to be good and holy, but to do it for the wrong reason, with the wrong motivation. There is always the call to obedience in the Christian life. It's it's the call of Christ himself. It's it's a calling that comes w- within his call to be his disciple. Come, follow me. Is obviously not the call to go and sin all the more. But here's where we need the fullness of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. To be a disciple of Christ is first of all to to depend upon Christ, to trust Him and and rely upon Him for His blood and for His righteousness. It is finally His blood that cleanses us and that that should grieve us, that that He had to suffer and die that we might be saved. Think Think of the wickedness, think of the actual unbelief that says, well, Jesus died for my sin, so I'll go right on sinning. Jesus suffered and died in my place. Therefore, I will just heap all the more sin upon him. And to be a disciple of Christ also means, as we've said, to love Christ. And to love, to want to honor and to serve him through a life of, of obedience, Paul is still teaching us about salvation. Let us make no mistake, but he pauses to make it clear what he isn't saying. The grace of God is not a license to sin. It's, it is true that once we receive by faith the, the gift of righteousness, our sin is not and is never counted against us. We could sin that grace might abound. There is no end to God's grace. Maybe you know the the old hymn, grace, grace, God's grace, grace uh, grace that is greater than all my sin. And it's true, and it's glorious. So shall we take it as the freedom to sin? By no means. In other words, what? Are you out of your mind? Have you not understood it? Are you perhaps not yet a believer? If this is your response to Christ in the gospel, your your precious Savior died for you, he suffered for your sin. Though your sin is forgiven, how can you live in it any longer? An important clarification comes in the middle of Paul's teaching <clears throat> regarding our salvation. It won't be until chapter 12, as we've said, that Paul begins in earnest his teaching regarding the Christian life, how to live as a Christian. But he pauses here to answer an objection, to correct a mistake by calling his readers to obedience. But even as he does so, he yet he continues to teach about our salvation about how it is that we are saved. And so the second point is understanding baptism. Paul uses baptism as support for his instruction that obedience does matter. He goes on to write, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here, to understand Paul's argument and instruction, we need to understand baptism. Baptism is uh, one of the two sacraments in the New Testament, uh, sacraments for the New Testament church. I I always always think it helpful uh, to to see that, in a sense, there are two sacraments in the Old Testament and there are uh, two sacraments in the New Testament. And they correspond to each other. In the Old Testament, there was the Passover, which very clearly uh, Christ fulfilled, leaving us with the Lord's Supper. That transition is just crystal clear within scripture we don't slaughter the lamb anymore because christ is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and we don't practice circumcision the second of the of the two old testament uh, sacraments and we don't because christ is our circumcision by his cross so that instead he has left us with baptism. And just as in the Old Testament, the sacraments pointed forward to Christ, so in the New Testament, the sacraments also point to Christ. This is Paul's point here in Romans 6. His point is not that baptism is the thing that saves us, but that baptism is the thing that points us to Christ. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, no. Don't you remember your baptism? Don't you know what your baptism meant and what it still means to you today? Your baptism teaches you something far different than let us go on sinning that grace may abound. Your baptism is not something that you decided to do, not your offering to God, but your baptism was a picture of And is a picture, a signification, as we say, of what has happened to you, of what God has done for you. You have died and have risen with Christ. The most obvious thing that baptism signifies is that you have been cleansed. Every day we use water to wash our hands, to wash our bodies, to wash our clothes, to wash our dishes water, water, everywhere, and it's all about cleansing. Well, so it is in baptism. As the water of baptism is applied to us, it signifies that we have been cleansed. But at the very same time, the water of baptism signifies how we have been cleansed by the death and resurrection of Christ. Even as water cleanses, so it also kills and even as it kills it also gives life water is the is the perfect sign of our salvation because it carries the meaning number one of cleansing water cleans number two it it carries the meaning of death water kills and number three it carries the meaning of life because We can't live without it. So here is Paul's teaching on baptism. His point is not that believers actually die and live again in baptism. His point is not that baptism itself contains or delivers the power to save us. His point is that baptism is a picture of what it means to believe in Christ. Why is it that we always want to make the ceremony the main thing? It's like marriage. How, uh, how easy to reduce marriage to a wedding. But a wedding ceremony takes, what, half an hour. Marriage is for a lifetime. In the same way, baptism is a, is a one-time event, but it's, it's the picture of both the past and the future. It's the picture of how we have been cleansed from sin, but cleansed only as we have died with Christ and have risen again with Him. This is what we come to learn when we, when we believe in Christ, that, that we have both died and have been raised with Christ. It didn't happen in our baptism, but our baptism pictures it, or, or more accurately, it signifies what has happened and even our faith itself is not the thing that makes it happen but the thing that shows that it has happened so think of it this way that that some two thousand years ago in in history christ died and rose again the result the effect the the outcome of his dying and rising is a new creation, the, the repentance and faith of believers throughout all time. And if we are believers, then we too are the result. We are the effect. We are the outcome of his dying and rising. When, when Christ died, we died. Do we understand this? When Christ rose again, we rose again. This is God's plan for our salvation. We weren't around then, and that's okay, because God is not a respecter of, of persons nor of time. When Christ died, we died with Him by the plan of God for our salvation. When Christ rose again, we rose with Him by the plan of God for our salvation. As Paul explains more clearly in Ephesians 2, which we heard earlier, we were dead in sin. But God raised us up with Christ. We've got to get over ourselves. We've got to submit ourselves fully to God's plan of salvation to understand that salvation is not from us. (coughs) It is fully from God and within his sovereign plan. Jesus himself said, for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We've got to get over ourselves. So go ahead and and record and remember. It's a wonderful thing. Remember the date of your conversion if you can. But if you are a believer in Christ, you died with Christ 2,000 years ago. And you rose with Christ 2,000 years ago. And you were saved when he rose again three days later. And This is the meaning of baptism. Can, can we not see how backwards it is then to think of baptism as something that we do for God or something that we do at all? Baptism is the picture, the the signification of what God did for us in Christ. We being caught up, even though we weren't even there yet, yet we were caught up, as it were, in God's doing for us in Christ. When he died, we truly died with him. So that we were there within God's plan of salvation. When he rose again he truly was raised up from death, so that we were raised up with him, teaches Paul in Ephesians two. There's that old song. I don't think it's a bad song, but it says, Were you there when they crucified uh, when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they when he rose up from the dead? Well, yes, yes, teaches Paul. If we are believers in Christ, we were there. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is baptism. So that, what better time to be baptized when we're not even aware that it's happening to us? I speak, of course, of covenant baptism. Some want to object that we shouldn't baptize our children because they don't know what's happening. Uh, It's not their decision to be baptized. How much better, how much more meaningful is baptism when it isn't their decision to be baptized? Our children are born by the sovereign grace of God into the church. They are members by birth. Does that sound familiar? Our children are members of the church by birth. Just as all of us are members of Christ by the death and resurrection of Christ our savior. So yes, they they need to be taught the <clears throat> the meaning of their baptism. They need to improve their baptism as we say, but how very special how terribly amazing is it to be able to say, I was baptized before I could possibly confuse what I did with what God has done for me? God gave me to be born into a Christian family. I was baptized as an infant and God produced repentance and faith in my heart by working faithfulness in my parents. I owe it all to Christ. What do I have that I did not receive? And if I did receive it, why should I boast as though I did not receive it? And this last point uh, comes in conclusion Dying and rising with Christ. We've already started in on this in verse five, Paul writes, "For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. But when we are united, but, but when were we united with Christ? That's the question. W- w- was it at baptism? No. Baptism is only the picture, the signification of our union with Christ. Uh, were we united with Christ upon our coming to faith? No, my faith is the result of my union with Christ way back when he died on the cross and rose again. Instead, we were united with Christ from all eternity. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of of the world. And I, and I realize that it, it, it's far, far easier to preach Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And, 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 and that in itself is a glorious truth. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But God's Word does not leave us there. Instead, God's Word teaches us that God has an eternal plan. For the salvation of those whom he saves. Faith is the result of Christ's finished work. And salvation comes by faith. Without faith, there is no salvation. But where does faith come from? It comes from God as a gift. And by faith comes the gift of salvation. And by salvation comes the motivation. For obedience. Why should you not sin that grace may abound? Because you have died and have risen with Christ. Because you have been saved to the uttermost. Because you have come to see that you have been caught up in something eternal, something monumental, something wonderful, something full of God's love for you. So let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Can we hear now what Paul is saying? He's not saying, and not in a million years is he saying, oh, be careful now, because uh, if you sin, you you might yet be damned. No, he's saying, don't let sin Be your master. Because sin is not your master. Christ is your master. He owns you. You belong to him. You have died and you have risen with Christ. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Well, we certainly could. Our sin does not count against us. We can no longer be judged for our sin because our sin has already been judged and it's been punished in Christ. It is true that with Christ as our Savior, we can do whatever we want. We could bury ourselves in sin. We can charge headlong into sin because we're righteous in Christ. But if we are righteous in Christ if we are forgiven by the blood of Christ, then why would we do that? As Paul writes elsewhere, the love of Christ controls us. He loved us. We love him. He obeyed for us perfectly. We strive to live for him. He succeeded perfectly in what he set out to do And he did it for us. We live imperfectly. But as we do, we grieve our sin. But we press on. And we do not sin that grace may abound. We obey so that the grace of God in Christ might produce in us a life lived for Christ. A life lived for Christ. That's the Christian life. And we live for Christ not to be saved, but because we are saved. Because he has saved us. How will you live in this week? Will you submit and obey? Will you say no to sin and say yes to Christ and his commands? But even if you do say yes, there is still the question why? To come full circle. Why? Is it just... Is it just to be holy? It's important why we are living for Christ. Just as important why... As that we live for Christ. So brothers and sisters, live for Christ. And do so because you have died and have risen again with Christ. Live for Christ. Because he has died and has risen again for you. Amen. Let's pray. Grant, O God, our Father, your Spirit, that we might see your plan of salvation ever more clearly and understand how fully we have been caught up within an eternal decree, an eternal plan for our salvation. Grant that we would indeed turn from sin and do what is right and good and that we would do so for the right and good reason. That we have a full and free salvation in Jesus Christ. And that we want to live for him. As we fail, we grieve our sin, O oh God. We seek your forgiveness. But we do not lose heart. And we get up from our failure And we go forward again knowing that you are our God and that Christ is ever, ever our Savior. So may we rejoice and obey and strive each and every day to serve and to honor our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.